hi, it's Crystal here, your favorite hairy lady from RuPaul's Drag Race UK Season 1, and Jamie Lee Curtis's sexy transformation sequence in True Lies made me queer. Welcome to Season 2 of The Things That Made Me Queer. It's been a minute since Season 1 finished, but I'm so happy to be back in your ear holes for Season 2. We've got an incredible lineup of guests coming up over the next few weeks. If you haven't listened to Season 1 yet, though, just scroll on down and check it out. And if you are new here, well, each week on this podcast, I'll speak to a different special guest about the things that help them discover, understand, and embrace their queerness. They will bring a person, a place, some music a film or TV series, and a wildcard that were formative in their queer development, and we will use them to delve deep into their queer story. This week, I'm joined by Ben De La Graham. We have a lovely chat about their start in drag, their inspirations, and the wonderful full circle moments that come with a bit of success. Um, before we get into it, though, please make sure you've subscribed so you can always get the latest episode. And also, please, please, please spread the word. Sharing is caring, after all. Okay, should we get into it? <gasps> Season two, here we go. If you somehow don't know her... Dela was one of the breakout stars of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 6, and then meme queen of All Stars Season 3. She's a comedy sensation, touring icon, and lately a film star as well, with the incredible Jinx and Dela Holiday Special. Joining me on the line, it's fan fave, notorious nice girl, and drag icon, Ben De La Creme. Well, hi, hi. Ben. Hi, thank you Hi. so much. Thank you for that enthusiastic <laughs> introduction. I'm so glad of to course. be here. Oh, I'm delighted you are here. Thank you so much for making time. Where Where in the world are you? I am in uh, Los Angeles, California right now um, in my basement, which I'm very fortunate to have because they don't have a lot of those here. Um, but I have a little studio down here, which has been basically my... Um, full-time cave for the last 12 months but drag cave <laughs> yeah drag exactly cave. yeah well I'm delighted to be joining you in your little cave um before we get into it can I just ask you how you identify and what your pronouns are yeah you know that is a question that I have to say I have struggled to answer with like well with like interview stuff for for so long because in my day-to-day -day life I go by Ben and he, him. But as drag queens, you know, we so often just, I mean, everyone I know basically calls me Dela and she, her. And so I'm just always like, kind of like, I don't know. We can go with Ben and he, him for now because this interview is sure. really, you know. Okay, great. And do you identify as a gay man? Uh, I identify, I guess, as a as a queer person. I do identify as male, Um you know, I mean, whatever. I, I've warned you in the past, Crystal. I could talk <laughs> your ear off about. You could ask me one question, expect a one-word answer, and I could talk forever. But 
the reality, but just, you know, real quick, I sort of, you know, part of me is like, if non-binary, like, culture was really sort of in the air, if I'd had that awareness when I was younger, I probably would identify differently. But I think that in my lifetime, I've really embraced identifying as a cis male, because for me, embracing the aspect of privilege I have within that has been really important. So anyway, my gender's complicated, but yeah, I'm a dude. <laughs> um, I relate to, I just... Everything you just said, I just relate to so much. Like, firstly, the interview thing, because you always get interviewers, don't you? And they're like, oh, they're always a bit nervous and they're not sure how to refer to you. And you're like, well, I'm not really sure either, because, like, I don't really care. But also, like, in drag, if I was in drag, yeah, she, but, like, I'm just sitting here in front of you as a boy, like... So, yeah, I always find that a bit weird. Well, and it's also, like, if I'm in drag and someone calls me male pronouns, I'm, like, deeply it's offended. So rude. That but is If I'm so out rude. of drag and someone yeah. says she, I don't give a crap. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And then the non-binary thing you were just talking about as well, it's like, I totally know what you mean. I think, I guess I just find maybe our generation, yeah, like you say, we haven't, we weren't exposed to that as an option quite so early. But also, like... You should you should be able to feel a little non-binary without necessarily saying you are non-binary. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I mean, I think that right. One of my favorite things about drag, and one of the one interesting thing to me about drag is like so many times somebody who maybe is more used to a heteronormative lifestyle will come up and be like, "Oh my god, you look like like a lot of." straight cis women will be like, oh my God, you look even better than me. And it's like, they treat it like it's some magic trick where it's like, you're a man, but you can look like a woman. And it's like, well, maybe the lesson there is that this isn't what women look like. This is just like (laughs) totally constructed, right? Yeah, Yeah, so it's just like, whatever. What are any of us really? Oh my God, you're better at makeup than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not Uh... because one of us was born with a penis and one was born with a (laughs) China. It's because, it's because I one of us do, does this for our profession, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, babes, how is how has the last year been? Like, what have been some highlights for you? I know there's been lots of lowlights for everyone, but what are some highlights? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the, so many of the highlights have been born out of the lowlights, right? And that's like, I think the thing that I certainly cling to is that, um, you know, it's that thing where. It's not, some of the good stuff hasn't been in spite of, but it's been kind of because of, and it's those silver linings, right? But um, I mean, definitely my highlight for the year was um, creating the Jinx and Dale holiday special, which was the first uh, film I have ever produced and directed. And that never would have happened if we weren't, you know, if we were able to tour this year, we never would have made the, the film version. And it was so gratifying and I'm so happy to kind of have been forced off that cliff because I kind of have the bug now. Um, but also, mm. you know, it was hard to put up because we, uh, you know, had to do it all super safely. Like the whole cast and crew had to quarantine. And it was like constant mm-hmm. testing and it was very difficult. But it was um, it was such an amazing thing to get to like be back in like a space being creative with other people and collaborating, you know, as we all know, as artists, it's been so hard to do this in isolation from home. So I got to have a little break from that isolation and I'm very grateful for that. And I, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass, but it was incredible. Like it blew my mind. It blew my mind because you go into like drag productions these days and you expect things to feel a little bit low budge but like, 
It was just so, it felt so glossy and like every, you could tell every little thing was thought through from the shots. The costumes were incredible. It was so funny. Like you just, you like raised the bar so high for what drag entertainment on film can be, I think. And like, you should just be so proud of yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know that it it really, it was a thing. I mean, first of all, I'm like an insane type A kind of art maker, right? Like the rest of my life, I'm a disaster. Like this whole room is so messy. Like I can't like pay my electric bill on time. But, um, but when it comes to art, I'm like so maniacally anal in a way that's like, you know, maybe mental health suffers, but the art succeeds. But, um, <laughs> but it was just a thing where it's like, okay, if we're going to do this at all, we have to do it. Right. And it just kind of kept escalating. But fortunately there were so many, I mean, first of all, Jinx is an incredible collaborator in terms of creating and writing and performing with her, but there was such an amazing team of people working on it. And I was so, so fortunate for that. And I'm just so grateful that so many people reached out and kind of said like, this really meant something to me. This helped me through the year and especially a tough holiday. And I'm like, I'm so glad because that was true for me too. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, mm-hmm. that's kind of what saved me from whew, descending into madness during the holidays. Amazing. Amazing. Um, what else did I want to ask you before we got into it? Um, oh, it wasn't something I wanted to ask you. I just wanted to say that uh, I wanted to give you a thank you because you were one of the first queens that I spoke to after my season of Drag Race. And you spent a really gorgeous 30 minutes on the phone with me, just giving me lovely advice. And it was so nice. And like, I still think of that as like, like just this real ray of kindness that um, you didn't need to show me. And you did. So it was really, it's really great to be having this chat with you today, basically. Oh, that's so sweet. I really feel the same way. And it was so good to like connect with you. And I was glad that you reached out in the way you did, because I think that's really hard. Like that's hard in general for us as humans and for queer people and when we Mm -hmm. enter the public eye and Mm -hmm. so I hope any of that those thoughts I give you were useful but whether or not they were I'm glad that we were able to connect in that way (laughs) yeah it was great it was great and like I reached out to a few people and uh the responses weren't all so positive so that's like yeah you can give yourself a little pat on the back for being a good person (laughs) (laughs) thank you Ben should we get into the things that made you queer let's do it Let's do it. I can't wait. You've sent me your list. I absolutely love it. Um, I think we're going to have lots to talk about. Um, So here it is. Film or TV series? Film or TV series. And you have given the iconic David Bowie's Labyrinth, Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Yes. Yeah. It was, man, that is a film that, I mean, there's so many pieces of film and and media that, that informed me as a young person, but that one, um, there's like a very visceral moment in my childhood that really Mm -hmm. has stuck with me. And, um, I mean, first of all, yeah. Set the stage for me. Where are you? Yeah. How old are you? Yeah. What's happening in life? So uh, at this point, I'm very young. I'm going to say single digits, although I'm not sure exact age. I don't know, eight, nine. Um, Mm -hmm. And I uh, am living in uh, Connecticut, in rural Connecticut, which is, um, I did not enjoy. That was definitely a place that um, I definitely, I just fell out of place there. It was not uh, you know, I think as young queer people, a lot of us experience this thing of 
um, the community we live in kind of being like, why are you so weird? Are you looking for attention? Like, you know, mm-hmm. there, I got a lot of like, are you attention seeking? And it's actually like, no, actually I'd love a lot less attention. I just wish you were more <laughs> like me, you know? Um, yeah. So I was in this very small conservative town and I really like kids didn't like me. Adults didn't like me. I was just, I was so such a queer weirdo from like Mm -hmm. out of the womb. Right. Like I was always this kind of flamboyant, crazy person with like a amorphous gender. But, um, but my mom was kind of my lifeline and we were very, very close. And she always made me feel like I was okay. She always made me feel like everything about me was not just okay, but like wonderful, you know? Um, And she was an artist and she really uh, kind of, she instilled a lot of the kind of creativeness and, uh, and that kind of love for the arts that I have now. Um, And she died when I was 13, but, and that was, you know, that's its own bag of whatever, but, um, but this is back b- before that when I was very young. And like I said, I was very apparently queer and most people knew it. And I was very lucky that my parents, you know, my dad has told me in my adulthood that my parents kind of discussed it a lot. And they were like, all right, this is definitely what's going on with this kid. What's the plan, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they were aware of it long before I was. And... um. My mom and I were both huge Jim Henson fans. In fact, Jim Henson and I share a birthday, which I love. But um, he, uh, you know, we we watched a lot of Muppets together. And she came to me one night with a VHS copy of Labyrinth that she'd rented. And she said, I think you're really going to like this. And she'd already seen it, which is, like, interesting to me. I, like, you know, I'm like, okay, what... <laughs> What What is what it that see? she wanted me to see here, you know? Yeah. So she brought this copy of Labyrinth and she and I sat down together, just the two of us in our living room in the front of this like big, creepy old farmhouse I grew up in. And um, we watched the movie and David Bowie in those like iconic tights with the cod piece and the makeup mm-hmm. and the hair that Tina Turner do, like gave me so many feelings and it was exciting and it was scary and it was partially attraction. I think it was partially recognition, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And when it was over and the credits rolled, I remember just being like so silent and then just bursting into tears and my mom just kind of like wrapping me up in her arms and just kind of holding me while I cried and you know finally sort of saying like what's going on what's wrong and I just said to her is it okay to think a boy is pretty and she said yes and she and she kept holding me and that's the only time we ever actually in a really direct way talked about the fact that I was queer because I didn't come out until after she died. Wow. Um, And it's a really special memory. Of course. That's, that's incredible. Um, You didn't talk about it, but I guess did that kind of set you up knowing that she was cool with it? Do you know what I mean? Like, 
did you did you carry that forward? Did you, did you hear her? Did you believe her? Absolutely. You know, I think I think my adolescence would have been a lot harder if I hadn't gotten that message that I held somewhere inside me because I was given the opposite of that message constantly in my teen uh-huh. years. And you know, it's it's I think it is easy to underestimate how much we ingrain our children with the messages we give them at an early age, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and just hearing just the, the few messages you can get that you're okay or that you're not okay as a young person, those can carry you through or they can sink you. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I really do, uh, I endured a lot of years of not getting any sense that I belonged in the world and um and whether or not that was like consciously in my brain that I'd had that experience with my mom it was in there you know yeah I think totally I think it was part of my survival my parents were the same that I can't remember a specific instance of them saying things saying to me you can love whoever you want and it's okay to like be different and but I definitely have knowledge that they did say those things to me and so it always meant that like I knew I had a safe place at home when everything else was like crazy or hard and I never worried like what would happen when I told them I was just more like I didn't want to because I would have to deal with that for myself before I could tell them but the the knowledge that like it was going to be fine when I did that's like a really powerful thing I think yeah um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a video going around right now on, um, I've been seeing it passed around a lot on Instagram of this dad who's, um, he's giving this speech about his his young trans daughter. And he's like this very, I mean, he just looks like a white buttoned up Republican man, you know, and he's talking about how for so many years he tried to force his daughter to like play sports and wear these like clothes that she didn't identify with and all these things. And, you know, he says, my kid was a kid who never smiled. And as soon as I realized what I was doing to them and allowed her to wear the clothes that she wanted to wear and do the things she wanted to do, suddenly she like opened up and turned into a different person. And I just like wept watching this video because, you know, that's, we underestimate it. And of course, then there's the slew of comments being like, well, okay, but like we shouldn't, but what about women's sports teams? And what about giving kids (laughs) hormones too young? And it's like, well, let's worry about these kids like living to puberty because, you know, suicide stuff is through the roof before we get too concerned about whether women's sports are going to get messed up, you know? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. um, That video sounds beautiful. And like, I'm, yeah, I'm just so glad that you had that moment with your mom that's that must be something that you really treasure I really do and you know sorry I've every tangent in the world but um but there was this moment of full circle because I think about myself as a kid a lot when I'm performing you know performing touring can be very arduous and every once in a while I kind of have to look in the mirror and remind myself like imagine if you could like travel Mm -hmm. back in time and tell child you that this is what you're going to get to do 
as an adult and this is what your life will be and how that would have like changed your your world and you know I was at DragCon a few years ago and uh my partner Gus was uh helping me kind of he was assisting me in my booth and uh this you know my favorite part of DragCon is the kids you know and getting to connect with those kids and this kid walked in with his mom and Gus turned to me and just with like a look of recognition. And then he peeked his head like out of the curtain, like the woman who was like letting people in and was just like, Ben's going to need a few extra minutes with this one. This kid was the spitting image of me as a child. (laughs) He looked exactly like me and Gus was instantly like that kid, you know, and it felt like time travel. And it was this kid, this queer kid with his mom who was like, she was bringing him to this place where he could feel like, connect, you know, and it was like one of the most beautiful moments. I mean, and he just, he finally left after we like talked for a while and like talked about like how good his life was going to be. I just got to tell him all those things. I always think about telling myself and then he left and I burst into tears and I had to like hold the line for 10 minutes, but um, you know. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, I have exactly those moments. And one of my biggest regrets was with DragCon was that I didn't like make my booth more private so that I could, feel like I could have those moments without an audience watching, but I totally agree. And I had not expected all the kids. I've only done one drag con. Um, And it was the kids, like the little boys in wigs that had been brought by their dads. Like that just like melted my heart. Um, So gorgeous. And um, that feels like such a difference to, you know, 30 years ago when I was a kid. Um, Yeah. It's crazy. Um, back to Labyrinth quickly and, and David Bowie's cod piece. Um, <laughs> favorite song? Oh, God. I mean, that entire soundtrack. It's so is good. Incredible. But I think probably the um, I saw my baby mm. crying hard as babe could cry. I love that one. Magic oh. dance. My fave is definitely as the world falls down which is like the ballroom scene yeah she's in she's in the peach dress and she just looks so gorgeous well and that scene was like one of the scenes right because like that's really the scene where we see david bowie like being kind of seductive and we see Mm -hmm. that attraction in a more palpable way between the two of them i mean that i was like why is my body tingling what is going on (laughs) yeah it's so hot it's so hot just and like the idea that it's all poisoned and she's living in this like wormy fantasy, but it's like so sexy in there. It's just like, it's got the darkness and you know, it's great. It's yeah. Great. And I think it's like, right. Like I think that film feels really queer for so many reasons. I think obviously a big part of it is just David Bowie and his presentation and everything else. But, um, but also it's like this tabooness. Like I think we as queer youth identified with like, what we're attracted to is also like there's this hint of like menace to it right and so i think that that also is part of what like hooked into me as a young person totally and she's also just like such a weirdo and like she probably doesn't have any friends at school because she spends all her time in the park like reading fantasy books and casting spells and stuff so she's like definitely a weirdo who's escaping into fantasy land and that was my childhood experience for sure same. Well, she, you know, she has that bedroom full of stuffed animals that she kind of like, you know, creates this world from. And that was actually exactly what I did as a kid was I had tons of stuffed animals and I would fully 
with no, I mean, this says a lot about who I am, with no audience, no one else present would like put on plays for myself using these (laughs) stuffed animals, right? Like, I guess that's why now I'm a film director, but. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, The Labyrinth made you queer, babes. And I think The Labyrinth has a lot to answer for, to be honest, in the queer community. I think I've done a poll on Twitter and David Bowie's crotch comes up many times. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You've got, a, think... you've got a community. We have uh, we we have Labyrinth to thank, really, for yeah. helping to <laughs> helping in that journey of self-discovery. Yeah. Or blame. Whichever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Person. And you have said Varla Jean Merman. Yeah, you know, she was uh, so influential for me. I was so, at this time, um, this is after high school, I moved to Boston, Massachusetts uh, for one year. I, like, deferred from college and was just like, I don't know what I'm doing with my what life. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I moved had to you Boston. Come, like, had you come from Connecticut? Like, you grew up, spent your whole life in Connecticut? or is No, it like a... I, um, I went, I lived, I was living in Connecticut uh, until about 16, um, and as I said, just having a rough time. And it only got rougher the deeper into high school I got. And I was like a very unhappy kid. And um, my dad, who is a wonderful guy, we did not always get along, but he always did his best to figure out how to support me, even though he didn't always understand how to. But the best thing he ever did for me was um, when I was, you know, midway through high school, he sort of recognized like, my kid is maybe not going to make it through high school. Mm. Like, you know, I definitely was having a lot of suicidal thoughts at that time. And he, despite being like a public school teacher with very little financial means and kind of, you know, he just worked it out and he sent me to a boarding school for the arts for my last two years of high school. And I have to say that changed my life. I truly believe that decision saved me. Um, Because suddenly I was meeting other queer kids. I was valued for the same things that made me an outcast at my last school. So anyway, that, that little journey happened. Honestly, like that was a huge stepping stone to me kind of like coming into my own as a human. Um, So then I moved to Boston uh, to kind of like figure out like, okay, what's the world outside of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just waiting tables at a restaurant and kind of like meeting people and figuring out the world. And I, started you, kind of are you out at this point oh i've <laughs> yes oh my god i i burned that closet to the ground at 13 it was basically okay it was, wow yeah no my my mom it was the same year my mom died which was crazy but i think it was also like kind of a motivation it was kind of like a uh well you don't know what's gonna happen you gotta move now you know um mm-hmm. I, I knew I was queer when I was 11, uh, but I was 13 when I came out. And like, so, I mean, it was also a thing where, right, like everybody at school had been calling me a faggot for years. So it was just like acknowledging that they were correct rather than like any sort of big <laughs> revelation. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I was like, I mean, my hair was every color of the rainbow for, you know, that entire section of my life. I was just like, I was 
crazy. Um, you know, and at the time I was like, ugh, I just can't fit in. I don't know. I give up. I'm so miserable. Um, I actually got to connect with a couple women who were uh, students at my public school, like just a couple years ago. And they said to me, we were also in awe of you because you were so yourself. You seemed so confident. You see, I was like, what? Like I was dying inside. So anyway, that just goes to show you, you never know what's yeah. going on with people, but um. <laughs> Okay, so I'm 18. I'm living in Boston. Um, And I, at this point, have already been exposed to drag. I, like, know I love drag. So I, you know, people ask me when I did drag. I'm, like, always. Like, I was wrapping towels around myself as a dress when I was, like, in the single digits, right? Like, Mm -hmm. no wonder my parents knew, right? Like, I was always the girl in in, in, uh, playtime with my friends and whatever. Um, So I'd like done drag for Halloween's. I'd like actually at my, my, at my art school I went to, I did like a little cabaret and drag. Like it was so like, (laughs) you know, and this is at like 17 or something. So anyway, now I'm living in Boston. Um, I know I want to be a drag queen, but I don't know what that means. Right. So I just know I'm obsessed with drag and I'm not old enough to get in the clubs because in the States you have to be 21. And, um, So I, like, can't really go to, like, bars and see drag and get involved. Um, But I attended everything I could. And I would just, like, comb through the print newspaper at the time, because that's how old I am, looking for, like, anything queer to go see live. And fortunately, there was some really interesting queer theater happening in Boston at the time. And I went to a show that was actually uh, the Gold Dust Orphans, which is was a really was and still is a really amazing uh, group of queer performers in Boston. They were doing an adaptation of The Bad Seed, which is an amazing uh, iconic <laughs> film. And on the chairs were postcards for another show. And I was like, this queen looks really fun. What is this? Which really just, you know, I just encourage people so much, like, get out, see live theater. It's so, like, you never know what road it'll leave you down. Because this postcard, I just decided to go to the show, Varla Jean Merman's Holiday Ham. It was her holiday show. And I went to see it. I had never seen anything like that. Like I said, I knew I wanted to be a drag queen. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. This performer was, first of all, stunningly gorgeous. Um hilarious had a voice that you just wouldn't believe like this Mm -hmm. beautiful operatic voice but she used it to sing the stupidest funniest cleverest songs and she would dance around like an idiot and she would wear the i mean she entered the stage wearing a nude suit with a big glittery ham over it i mean she was ridiculous (laughs) she was so camp and she just entertained for like, you know, 90 minutes and I'd never seen anything like it. And I turned to my friend afterwards who I went with and I said, I know what I want to do when I grow up. And of course she looked at me and she was like, uh, good luck. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I tell Varla now, I sort of say, you know, you didn't know it, but you were my drag mother. You were the one who like taught me how to do drag even though we didn't have that personal connection. And it wasn't until years later, I was performing in Provincetown where she performs every summer. She actually came to see the show I was in. I've never been so nervous in my entire life. Mm. Uh, You know, this was back in the day. This was before Drag Race. I was just getting established in Provincetown. It was like, there were five performers. I think it was like a one-to-one ratio with the audience. You know, I was mortified. I was like, Varla sitting by herself in the audience. And I'm just like, ah! Um, But she was so supportive, so sweet. She took me to lunch. I kind of told her what an influence she'd 
been on me. And years later, we're good friends. We talk all the time. Uh, she's started referring to me as her adopted drag daughter, which like, you know, blew my mind. Oh. And then I got to cast her in the holiday special too, which was <laughs> really full circle. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's just so many things that like, I'm just thinking about all of that story that I wonder how many drag queens Varla launched, like has launched in her career, not an unknowing. And it makes yeah. me think about like the people who see my shows, like it just, you never know what kind of ripple effects you're having. And that's like a, that's a bit of a head fuck. You can't really think like that. Cause it, it's way too much pressure, but um and like, and then how many drag queens you've gone on to launch by because of what you've done? Like, that's a really wonderful thing. Um, well, it's, it's it's pressure, but it's also motivation, right? Mm. Because it's that same thing we're talking about with like getting to connect with those kids, getting to speak to your past self. It's like, you know, performing can be fucking hard. And sometimes you stare out an audience and they just stare back at you like you're an idiot. You know, I mean, it's like there are- Most times like, in my case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it happens to all of us, right? Like we have these moments of just like, why do I do this? Like what, like I work so hard and, you know, and it's, and then of course you have, you know, many more audiences that are like really enthusiastic, but of course you always hone in on like the moment that it, you know, that one frowning face in the crowd of, people cheering but um mm -hmm. but knowing that like you know maybe this show is the show where one person in the audience is moved to do something with their life like I was moved by Varla and you just never mm -hmm. know you know yeah that's wonderful the queens that we connect with are the queens who don't look like everyone else on Instagram they're the queens who or maybe they do it's not about looks but but they're the queens who we really see who they are through their drag and what they want to put into the world. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And like, that is kind of the, the blessing and the curse of drag race, like so many careers and a huge industry because of it, but also um, people now get into drag because they think it's a route into fame and people don't even really understand what any of that means. Um, so yeah, if you're yeah. listening to this, it's don't do drag for that reason. It's not going to work out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it is like, I, I started drag at a time when I was inspired by Queens who had the same experience as me, which is that when I started drag, you had to do drag in spite of the fact that it kind of ensured you would never be rich or famous. Not yeah. only that, you would be like undateable. You'd be undateable. shunned by the straight yeah. and gay communities. And, um, and you had to love drag so much that you did it anyway. And so, and that passion is so important to me. And it definitely still exists with young people today, but it's like, there is both sides of it. But I feel like you can smell it, right? Like when there's mm. somebody no matter how young, no matter how influenced by current drag culture, you can like tell like, oh, this is in you. Like you're, uh, you know. Yeah, you're, you're doing drag because you have to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And totally. at the same time, I'm so glad that there is this like large, like so many queens have like earlier access to like, oh, there's a place for me. Oh, there's a container for who I am. And so I'm really glad that people get that. Yeah, totally. Visibility is so important. And um, it's very clear, like, when you talk, when I've been talking to people doing this show that, like, people of our generation, our references tend to be, more often than not, straight from when our 
when we're kids and people 10 years younger they've got actual gay heroes that they can reference yeah so um it's a wonderful thing um let's move on to your next item music who took the bump decepticon (laughs) yeah and you know i was so excited when i was uh listening to some of your past episodes to hear your episode with jd samson who i just oh my god that's so inspirational blew my mind that jd came on my podcast oh what an amazing human. Um, yeah. I've, I've met them, uh, I've met her quite a few times now, and every time I am still tongue-tied. Like, I cannot uh-huh. speak. Um, but because this band was so influential on me um, at this very interesting time in my life, uh, I was living in Chicago. So after my year uh, in Boston, I went to school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And uh, I at that point had been out as gay for a very Mm -hmm. long time and really identified as a gay man and, um, and had absorbed a lot of the culture that can come along with that, that um, in, I was kind of, I was definitely kind of one of those bitchy, catty, like insecure young men who was really, Mm -hmm had gotten so much messaging about what was wrong with me, especially as somebody who was very, who was um, like, I was a very chubby kid growing up. And one thing was when I started to kind of realize there was a world for gay men out there, I actually was like, oh, but they all look a very certain way. So there's actually not a world for me, you know? And so I actually, I struggled with eating disorders when I was younger. And uh, so at that point in my life, I was very skinny. I was very sort of, I was young. I was conventionally like hot uh for the first time in my life and I just became a monster like I was Mm -hmm. such an asshole you know because we pay that judgment forward right and so um so I was a jerk and I also unfortunately had taken on a lot of what we see in that gay scene fortunately a little less but still um which is an insane kind of misogyny and gynophobia right um And I just did not respect women and I did not uh, respect, uh, you know, I mean, we see a lot of, we still see it, it's too bad, this kind of um, really offensive and mean-spirited negative talk about vaginas, like in our culture, right? It's really, it's unfortunate. Um, But I participated in all of that, you know, and I moved to Chicago. I... uh, was doing drag in a a larger way there. And I was really part of that scene and it didn't feel good. And I felt judged and like my surroundings were toxic. I felt judgmental and like I was toxic. It was Mm -hmm. just a mess. And through a bunch of ins and outs, I found, um, a different queer community. I met a drag king actually who lived in my dorm and I started attending these shows by the Chicago Kings who were this drag king group. And I started meeting all of these amazing queer women. And then through that scene, like this whole beautiful queer scene of like, you know, self-identified like fags and dykes and gender variant folks and transgender folks. And I was like, oh my God, this world does not make me feel judged and I don't have to judge. And it was like, my mind exploded. And the soundtrack to that period of my life 
was La Tigre's album. Um, it, that was, I was introduced to that music when I was introduced to that scene and it blew my mind open. It was catchy. It was fun. It was joyful. It was political. It was outspoken. They were talking about feminist and queer issues mm-hmm. in a way that felt like a celebration and yeah. it just expanded my mind. And then as soon as I turned 21, I, uh, I went out to, uh, compete in my first drag competition, which was called Drag Race. This is before the TV show Drag Race. <laughs> it's it's still called Drag Race, and it's at uh, Roscoe's in Chicago, and um, uh, still hosted by Frida Lay, who is an amazing queen who I adore. And um, I, my first song that I performed to was Decepticon, and it was you uh... know. And that was my big, like, I was entering this, like, really gay space that I felt kind of not at home in. And I just gave this, like, crazy, high-energy, super queer feminist performance. And, you know, it was, I won. It was, (laughs) they responded so well. And I just started to realize, like, oh, you know, this is the world for me. These are the statements I want to make. And Mm -hmm. La Tigra, like I said, it it was the soundtrack to that point in my life. So... Did you did your drag go through a noticeable shift at that period as well? Like, had you been doing kind of like fishy in quotes drag before that, and like you did you find a new kind of queer way of? Yeah, that question makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. My drag has actually gone through a lot of evolution, as most of our does, but there's like sort of a few distinct eras, um, and they mostly go along with, right, like they can be defined by names that I went under. Um, But before that, I was definitely doing camp, but it was, like I said, it was bitchy. I mean, like I was, first of all, very beautiful when I was like a young queen, like in a very like, quote unquote, passable way, which is like, right, like we put a lot of value on that, but that's, you know, I put less on it now. But, um, but, uh, And I was, it was that thing where it's like, again, you seize control when you feel a sense of power and sometimes you overcorrect, right? So I like felt like beautiful and powerful when I was in drag. And so I was super mean, right? Like I was just like not a nice queen. Um, And when I kind of discovered this world, um, I found this kind of like punk riot girl aesthetic and the name I started going by was Tina angst and that was my drag character for a very long time Mm -hmm. and she was punk and she was angry but she was also like super queer and like a lot in a lot of my performances I was like a like a like a very punk kind of lesbian aesthetic right um I was also discovering a lot about my own sexuality at the time and that gay man in the sense that I had known was not didn't resonate with me um but uh but Tina angst really she had this aesthetic but there was also still like an anger in her it was like you know when Ben de la creme arrived on the scene which I can get into later but that really was a turning point uh, for me when I sort of started leading with kindness and, mm-hmm. and joy, you know, uh, Tina was, she was very queer, very punk, but, um, and very like celebratory of the queer scene, but there was still a lot of anger at, um, at the gay scene. I didn't feel included in at mm-hmm. the straight world, you know, mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't later till I dis- I kind of discovered for myself that um, the way you change minds and hearts is not through 
anger and aggression. It's through um, creating space for people to feel better, right? It's like, if you can create that sense of comfort and joy, people soften and they stop you know, they start being kinder. So anyway, that's it's that's you its tell own that thing. to Twitter. Right? Oh my God. <laughs> um there was actually a queen in Chicago who really inspired that in me. Her name was Miss Fuzi and she used to go around to bars. She was that she was really a big example to me. She would go around to bars. She was a, a little bit older, you know, I I'm always like she was an older queen. I'm like she was probably 30, you know, but um yeah. she she would go around and she would pass out candy and this was before we were nervous about taking candy from strangers, but she would pass <laughs> out candy and she would call everyone pineapple and she'd just go around and she'd say how are you doing pineapple how are you tonight pineapple and it was so sweet and she was so maternal that you just saw every bitchy gay man in the club suddenly become sweeter you know it was like Mm -hmm. that was a real moment of like an aha moment for me but um can I go on like a 17th tangent on this question yes please (laughs) I'm fascinated Um, and I'm getting such a like a such a clear picture of this time in your life so I love it okay tangent away oh man I really yeah I I can I can just go but um I mean but it's also because this was such a pivotal moment in my life right there was so many things happening at once and even with the billion things I talk about it's not even gonna it's like a a speck of how huge this point in my life was. But, um, you know, I say I was discovering a lot of things about my sexuality. And some of that was, you know, the way that Tina uh, on stage kind of manifested. And I started, you know, I, uh, I use the word dyke with a lot of love because it's how a lot of people at that point in my life identified. And it was a celebratory mm-hmm. word. And I just want to recognize that I know that that's a word that is very uncomfortable for people, uh, for many people still. And and so I only use this in reference to the people who self-identify this way and really like and feel a sense of joy at that term. And I certainly don't apply it to anyone who doesn't feel that way. But um, but. I was sort of taught this sense of joy and this sort of like dyke identity and aesthetic. And I brought a lot of that into my drag. Like she Mm -hmm. oftentimes was kind of butch presenting in ways or, or had certain attributes of that, but then also could be very femme. But, um, but that was very important to me and kind of, uh, and I, I messed a lot with that sense of queerness because there's this assumption of kind of like this objectification of male physical ideals that um, mm-hmm. that is goes along with drag. And I was just like, I don't identify with that, you know? Yeah. Um, but but that kind of coincides with this time of my life where I um I feel like I was introduced to myself as a queer person rather than a gay person um, by a community that was largely cis women and also trans men. And that became really my, my people. And those are still Mm -hmm. some of the people I'm closest with. And I feel like it really shifted my perspective. And it was also time in my life where I realized that I, you know, I'd certainly been attracted to, to cis men my whole life, but there was like, I don't know there, like looking back, I'm like, meh, it was kind of like, there was there was something lacking there, and at this mm-hmm. point in my life, I um I I and this is such a complicated topic, but I I met a man who I really fell for, and we started dating, and he was my first long term boyfriend, really that I was 
I would say it was the first time I was really in love. And uh, we were together for, for quite a few years. And he was trans. And it really, something shifted in me. And I really realized that, you know, that this was an aspect of my attraction and who I loved. And, um, you know, I've been very outspoken about the fact that my, my current partner is trans and, um, and that I feel like is an important thing to talk about and destigmatize. But I haven't talked a lot about the fact that I've like actually dated quite a few trans men in my adult life. Mm. And that is an aspect of my sexuality that's been hard to talk about because you know, we, and this is a very offensive term, but I'm just going to say it because part of my experience, but the term tranny chaser for a long time was the only term that I heard that applied to people um, who are attracted to trans people. And it was, it's really harmful to everyone, right? Like it discourages people who do have trans attraction from really being open and loving the people they love because it uh, not only is it like sort of a slur towards them, but it's also, you know, for me, I was like, Oh God, am I like, am I a fetishist? Is this bad? Like, am I? It's it's stigmatizing on both sides, isn't it? Yeah. And like everyone gets shamed it made me feel like I was somehow harming the people that I was attracted to, you know? And so, and then of course it hurts, you know, trans people in many ways. It wasn't until many years later, just a few years ago where I I was talking to our lady J who was like an incredible, Mm -hmm. she, you know, she works a lot in film and television. Now she's also an amazing musician, um, an activist, but she uh, is, is a trans woman who, you know, I was talking to and she was like, Oh, you're transsensual. And I had never heard that phrase before, but it seemed like this sort of loving way, you know, this is an aspect of the reality of our our sexuality is that there are people Mm -hmm. who are attracted to trans people and like, that's okay. And I actually, now that I talk about it more, have met so many people who are like, oh, me too, but we don't talk about it. And so I think it's like, you know, overall, we see a lot we, more trans people in the media now, but we have to also see the fact that these people can be like loved, right? Yeah, and we can. Yeah, we and also we do talk about it, but it's it's generally we talk about it as like straight men, quote unquote, who are attracted to trans women, and mm-hmm. like that's that is if if it gets talked about, that's the only framing that happens. Um, you, I can't think of any other person besides you in this conversation that we're having right now that's ever described that to me in the other way. Um, even though obviously, obviously it exists. It's just, there's no visibility for it. And so it's really, really, really important to talk about. Well, and it's so crazy. It's like anything else. As soon as you give voice to it, you realize how many people you have this in common with. I mean, I talked about this publicly on social media and I was touring a lot for, you know, this was right after All Stars 3 and I was in um, a lot of clubs and I will say almost every club I was in, at least one couple, one gay couple with a trans partner and a cis partner would approach me and say, thank you so much for talking about this. And I realized that, you know, this, this type of relationship, this model of relationship is very, very common. And all of us kind of don't talk about it because we because we don't know it's common, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also the, the, one of the great things about the, the way we talk about transness in the current debate is not debate in the current 
dialogue we have around transness is trans men are men and trans women are women. So therefore you can be a gay man and date a trans man and you can still, and you're still a gay man. Yeah. But in some ways that's also a bit limiting because it potentially doesn't include some other experiences within that. And, you know, I know lots of people who are in gay relationships and one person is cis and one person is trans, but potentially there's a, another aspect to that, that is kind of getting ignored. And there's a positive, there's a positive framing of it. And I guess there's also a negative framing of it because like you say, no one, no one wants to feel like they're fetishizing or othering or um, putting the people that they care for into a box. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. You know, and I think I do identify as queer and a lot of the, the, and the reasoning for that is complicated. I mean, queer can mean so many different people, things to so many different people. The reason I identify queer is not because dating trans men makes me any less gay, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's like, that is not part of it for me. It's really more about, uh, it's partially about my own relationship to my gender. It's mm -hmm. partially about the, you know, this thing that I see queer as being this beautiful term where to me, it kind of goes hand in hand with acknowledging the breadth of the queer community and that we're all kind of a part of it and that the segmentation it's it's almost this antiquated ghettoized thing where it's like all of these siblings of all genders and races and everything else within the queer community they are all my community and absolutely I, what you were saying earlier about like being a bit of a toxic gay in your early 20s like I relate to that so much and for me saying describing myself as a gay man sometimes feels like I'm lumping myself back into that community which I don't really see myself as as part of anymore like and it's like the kind of the kind of person I was that would have a fag hag and describe a woman as an accessory and like just be really dismissive and demeaning to to my female friends and like when I found the queer community I started to realize and unlearn some of those things and it, gay started to feel more limiting to me and queer felt like a world of possibility um and yeah yeah that word possibility resonates really hard with me because i also see queer as being like there being room to grow and change right like it's it's such an inclusive term that it recognizes the fact that our relationship to our own gender our own sexuality those things can can change and morph and be fluid throughout our lives and it doesn't make us any more or less queer mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and you know like one of my good friends my neighbor she is bi she's married to a man like she's not less bi because she's married to a man even though the world would probably like to think that yeah. you know and she, but she constantly needs to remind people and so you know it's just it's really important to like leave those doors open i guess we don't need to limit ourselves into like tiny little boxes, especially not today. And at the end of the day, nobody gets a vote on how you identify. You know, it's like literally you're the only one casting a ballot on that yeah, one. Totally. <laughs> Gorgeous. Um, so your next item is your place. Place. And you've given me Seattle. Yeah. God, you have lived everywhere. Well, I mean, uh, in America, U U.S., U.S. exclusive. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, no, I really I made my way across the country. I kind of, you know, when I uh, 
I was ready to leave Chicago and I knew I wanted to move West because I, I mean, essentially for no other reason than I grew up on the East and I hated it. And I just wanted to get away as far away as possible. Um, but also Go West young man. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of like a mythology in America mm-hmm. of the West coast. Right. And it, there is such a, um, I mean, there is just a different vibe on the East and West coast. And I think it does sort of, you know, it comes from, you know, New England is as close as it gets to kind of like the original puritanical kind of settling. And West is where we kind of, you know, got more, well, whatever, it was still all genocide and terrible shit. But anyway, um, the, (laughs) the West Coast, you know, does have this, you know, it always kind of called to me when I was young. And I knew I wanted to move there, but I didn't know where. And so I just kind of spent a month crashing on couches in Portland and Seattle and San Francisco. And just, I kind of was like, I don't know. I'll just see which one. And I honestly kind of randomly picked Seattle. I was like, I don't know if I don't like it, I'll move, but it's where I'll start. And it was, I just moved to Seattle at this perfect time. It was like this moment that, Every performer I know who I met in that period was like, you know, some of whom had been performing in Seattle for a long time, some who were just getting started out, but everyone was like, holy shit, this renaissance, it was, something was in the air where it was, it was a small enough place that there was so much support, uh, to sort of mm-hmm. incubate these artists and there were enough audiences for everyone, but it was still underground, but like we could all, all these performers across genres. And I'm talking about like drag. I'm talking about burlesque. I'm talking about performance art. I'm talking about contemporary dance, theater, stand-up comedy. All these worlds were coming together in the same venues and the same shows. And there were so many shows and audiences just showed up. And um, and I don't know why. I don't know why it was the perfect storm to incubate this. But um, you just saw all these genres cross-pollinating. And it was that influenced so much of what I do. I mean, you see mm-hmm. all of those. I still see all of those forms in my work now and it's just because I just got to magically enter this place so it was really I mean it was a fluke I did not know that that's the city I was moving to and I it's the first city that ever really felt like home to me you know of all the places I lived I was like oh my god this is home and um and I within you know I was working like four jobs at the same time and performing at nights when I was living in Chicago. And within a year of moving to Seattle, I was performing full-time. It was crazy. And it was just, uh, let's see, this is 2006. I don't know what, what year is it now? I don't don't know. (laughs) This is like my mid twenties. Mid twenties. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I started out emceeing at this, you know, and this is like, I'd been taking the gigs I could get a couple times a week, not necessarily doing what I loved when I was in Chicago, doing some great stuff, but it was certainly for no money. Um, and within a year, one of still my closest friends, he's like a brother to me. His name is Faggity Randy, and he's a um, boylesque performer. Uh, and he was one of the first people I met in Seattle. And he was like, I work at this cabaret, and we're looking for a new MC. And I was just looking at your MySpace page at the time. <laughs> 
and I saw that you do a lot of drag and I was like yeah I don't know I'm maybe not doing that anymore now that I moved to Seattle and he was like well I think you should put on some drag and come audition and I was like oh, all right and I went I got the job and I was emceeing this dance burlesque show six nights a week at this wow. like tourist spot in Pike Place Market and it's really where that kind of frequency and then I started getting booked in like burlesque shows and other kind of like cabarets and that frequency of performance people are like how do you get good at it it's like you just do it all the time and you're probably very bad at it for a long time but it's like that you know it's that constant repetition that like helps you hone any skill um that's the first place I used the name Ben de la Creme Mm -hmm. uh and it was uh it just you know all of those I, I still am very close with a few of those people from Chicago who really informed my life, but but Seattle was where I really extended my queer family. And, you know, many people in the holiday special are people that I've been working with that we shot it in Seattle because that's where my community is. And many of those dancers are people that I've worked with for many years and really are my family. And, um, you know, and I met Jinx there. That's where mm-hmm. we met years before either of us were on Drag Race. And, you know, I was producing shows and I started casting her in shows. And, um, you know, it was it was just this flourishing world. And that's where I started producing. That's where I started writing narrative work. All this stuff that I never imagined I could do. But Seattle was just the perfect breeding ground. Oh, what a magical land you've just painted. <laughs> I honestly wish I could share it with everybody. People are like, Seattle sounds amazing. Should I move there? And I'm like, nope, because it's not that time period anymore. Now Amazon yeah. is based in Seattle. It's totally changed. It's really not the same place that it used to be. I still yeah. love it. It's still a home to me. But like, people are like, that sounds amazing. I'm like, well, hopefully it's happening somewhere else. Best of luck. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a bit of that when I moved to Montreal. Um and I was doing shows there, kind of doing boylesque, and um, it really felt like a world of possibility because of all of those scenes coming together. And I think it sounds a lot like what you're describing, but maybe just on a smaller scale. Um, what a what a gorgeous experience to have! And I feel when, so lucky. Have you kind of did you kind of live in Seattle ever more until Drag Race happened, and then? Oh, I lived in Seattle until March. We moved here 14 days before quarantine. Okay, got it. (laughs) Like literally, it was so hard. You never should have left. Oh my God. Well, at least there's sunshine here. I have to say the big thing about moving from Seattle, like I love Seattle. I wouldn't have left except that my my circumstances were kind of perfect in that I'm on tour so much that kind of where I live barely matters. I was starting to get more kind of opportunities in TV and film that I was kind of missing out on because I didn't live in LA. And half the time it's like, can you show up this afternoon? You know? So, but I still do productions like longer runs many times a year in Seattle. So I was like, okay, I'm not really leaving. I still get to come back for big chunks of the year and like be with my queer performance family and the audiences that really supported me. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. How long had you been in Seattle before Drag Race happened? Ooh. Uh, uh, I, I, like, when was season six? Um, I feel like season six was like... 2015? 
2014? Really? 2014? I don't know. Should I Google it right now? <laughs> no, it doesn't okay. matter. Um, <laughs> Who <but> cares? <laughs> I've been in Seattle for quite a while. It had been, um, I actually think, okay, wait, actually, I think I can track this because I was on season six. Jinx was on season five. I think when I moved to Seattle, I was hearing whisperings that they were casting season one of this drag reality show. And I was like, oh, that's right. interesting. So I think season one happened right like the year after I moved to Seattle. So, yeah. you know, so about six years, roughly six years, if a, it's a season a year, I don't know. Um, but I had actually people for years, including Faggoty Randy, who's like been like my biggest pusher in my career, but also very wonderful in that way. Uh, but he for years was like, you have to try out for this. You have to try out for this. And I was like, eh, no, I don't know. I really, you know, my big resistance at the time was I was so inspired by queens like Varla and Coco and all these people who kind of like paid their dues to get to where they were that I was like I don't want the shortcut because I want to hone my skills as much as they did and really earn those audiences then I was talking to Varla and she was like are you kidding I would have gone on TV if I had the opportunity I was like okay Um, but also Jinx went on and she won and I was like there's no way I'm letting you have all this spotlight so (laughs) um (laughs) but uh but yeah so I was also I'm really happy that I, you know, in Seattle, I did get the opportunity to work full time as a queen already. I was already producing uh, my own my own work and really working full time. I think that it really helped that not feel like it was still a crazy shift and an abrupt, you know, change in my life. But I think I was much more prepared for it than some other queens who don't necessarily get to have that experience before going. Totally. I feel like you can really tell a queen that's had a long time to cook before Drag Race versus one who's been a bit thrown in. And, like, you don't get to decide when opportunity knocks, but, like, ideally it will knock when you're ready for it and not when you're, like, still figuring your shit out. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the last and final item on your list, your wild card. Wow. And you have given the documentary film Wigstock. So Wigstock the movie is the documentary. Uh, There's actually three Wigstock documentaries. The most recent one is the wig one that came out that Neil, um, I almost said Neil deGrasse Tyson, Neil Patrick Harris um, did with Lady Bunny. But, um, but so this is, this would be the second Wigstock movie, which came out in the 90s, 89? Well, anyway, whatever. This is the second Wigstock. It was the biggest Wigstock documentary in terms of release. The first one was a little bit smaller. Um, and I, this was the first time for me i saw this as a teenager and again this was another one of these aha moments kind of varla was a later one um but this was the first time that i had seen like what was happening with the drag scene and of course drag is very regional and especially was at the time because we didn't have the internet kind of making things as um ubiquitous but um but this was you know, the New York scene at this time, which was when um, it was like right after RuPaul's supermodel came out, right? Like she was kind of like really making her, seeing her claim uh, in pop culture in this really incredible way. And uh, so 
with that visibility, I think came the opportunity for them to make this documentary about the Wigstock Festival, which had already been happening for many years, but it's this huge festival, was this huge festival in New York City, where all of kind of like the the biggest drag names, but also just a huge variety. I mean, Lady Bunny ran this thing and she did this incredible job curating something that was like cast such a wide net and you saw all types of drag performers. And the Wigstock documentary is largely clips of the live show, interviews with some of the individuals who were part of it, um, and then people who attended. And um, and I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was the breadth of what these queens were doing was so inspiring and everyone was such a weirdo and it really it still really influences my um my drag aesthetic like there's so many just like like the 90s was so weirdly obsessed with the 60s like there was so much of like like the 90s yes who are in that documentary and um right like lady bunny obviously super 60s influence um and uh, that still really speaks to me. There is a there is a particular thing that was done in the '90s constantly that is done less now, but that I still do, and I'm obsessed with it, and I love it. People are critical of the fully opaque dance tights in the clear open toed stripper shoe. No way! I love it. I Lady Bunny and Rue rocked that look throughout that time period, and I was obsessed. It's like that Barbie leg, that uninterrupted line of the Barbie foot with no toes. It's like part Barbie, part Miss Piggy. It's like so glamorous, <laughs> and I love it. And every time people are like, "Ew, tights with open-toed shoes," I'm like, "Learn your drag history." Anyway, uh, <laughs> yes, Dela, teach the children. <laughs> I will. I absolutely will. Um, you know, and it introduced me to all of these legends. Like that was my first exposure to Lady Bunny. It was my first exposure to Candace Kane, who's incredible in it. Um, who else? Lipsinka uh, and Coco Peru, who, uh, of course, you know, I mentioned earlier was a was one of the people that Varla cites as an inspiration. Has also been a big inspiration for me. I mean, I continued to follow Coco's career very closely. Of course, she, Varla, and Jack Plotnick were in the legendary drag film "Girls Will Be Girls," which was a cult hit and really set the bar for what drag. Uh, film can be um you know it was really a film starring drag queens as opposed to like you know um so anyway that introduced me to to many of those characters and uh and I remember that being kind of the first step to my sort of awakening of who I was and seeing a world that I wanted to participate in and being introduced to Coco in that way, too, you know, she's only very briefly featured in it, but she is such a powerhouse that even in fleeting shots of her in a group live performance, her facial expressions alone just make you want to follow her. And then, of course, she was in Trick. She was in Will, Will and Grace. She was, had she had a pretty big career. Uh, oh, my God. That movie. I'm... I'm having flashbacks. You remember that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes! Uh, you ever get cum in your eye? It burns, right? <laughs> so iconic. <laughs> um, but she, uh, 
you know, and then as soon as I was able to, I started going to see her live. And she's, I mean, if you haven't seen Coco live, you have to. She is such a, you get a taste of her online, but she's a brilliant storyteller. And I've never seen a Coco show where I don't laugh hysterically for 90% of it and sob uncontrollably for the other 10. She's a beautiful storyteller. Um, So... Anyway, she's brilliant. Girls Will Be Girls Will Be Brilliant. I was introduced to her at this time. It was amazing. But to bring it full circle, uh, it felt so vulnerable and scary putting the the holiday show, the special, out this year. Uh, And you never know what the response is going to be. You put it into the world. You hope for the best. One of the first people I heard from, because I sent links out to a few people that I was like, I'd really like you to see this. And Coco was one of them. Now, Coco and I have known each other for many years. We've had lunch together a few times when we're sort of in the same place performing at the same time. We've texted a bit, but we're not like phone call buddies. She called me and I was like, Coco's calling me. This is amazing. I picked up and she talked to me for probably 45 minutes about how much she loved the special and about how much for her it encapsulated what a lot of what she really loved about drag, what drag meant for her, both aesthetically and in terms of the references, but also in terms of the message of like family and inclusivity. And um, and I just was floored. It was really, you know, this is one of those magical moments that you hope for as a human and as an artist where somebody that defined who you became and influenced you from the get-go tells you that what you're doing makes them proud and Uh, means something to them. And I said to her, I said, think, (laughs) it sounds like old time. I says, I says. (laughs) I says to Coco, I says. But I said to her, "Um, thank you so much. You know, Girls Will Be Girls really inspired so much for me and kind of set the, the bar for drag film. And she said to me, well, honey, you reached the bar. Wow. And that was one of the most amazing things that I've ever had happen. And I really was, okay, if no one else likes this, if no one else looks at it and everybody says it's garbage, this is why you make art, right? It's for the people that you really respect to, to, to win their respect is like, that is one of the most incredible feelings you can have. Totally. It's uh, so validating. Oh, Ben, thank you so much for sharing all those beautiful stories I loved getting an insight into what makes you as a queer person, but also as an artist. Um, yeah, really, really lovely. Thank you. Bef- before you go, though, um, will you please let listeners know where they can find you and how they can support you? Yeah. Um, so I, folks can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, cross platforms at Ben De La Creme. Uh, and the, if people want to check out the Jinx and De La holiday special, you know, I really do think it's something that uh, transcends just the holiday period and it's uh, available to stream on Hulu as well as to buy a rent on jinxanddela.com if you're outside of the United States. And, uh, and we are also working on getting things back up and running for when we can be touring again. So um, Jinx and I, as of now, uh, we will be announcing dates and locations soon, but we'll be touring through November and December throughout the UK and the US. And my uh, rescheduled uh, tour of my new solo show, Ready to Be Committed, which we were supposed to do last year, will also be uh 
heading throughout the US and UK in 2022. So keep your eyes out for those dates. Gorgeous. And yes, a full seconded on the holiday special. Check it out. Well, thank you for doing such a important and dynamic and exciting podcast. I really, I love tuning in and I'm happy to be a part of it. So thanks. Thank you so much for being here, Ben. Bye. Thank you so much to Ben De La Creme for joining me for the premiere of season two of The Things That Made Me Queer. I hope you listening enjoyed the episode. And if you did, well, please share, share, share. And if you didn't, well, no one needs to hear about that. <laughs> I'd also love to hear the things that made you queer. So tweet me and use the hashtag the things that made me queer and I will share your moments on a future episode. So until next week, I've been Crystal. Stay sparkly, transparent, and cheap. Oh, and queer. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Cave Boy. Go check them out for some other lovely queer bops. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production.